Hello and a warm welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the penultimate episode of the first series of the show before I have an upcoming couple of weeks break. I'm Paul, the host and True Crime Enthusiast of the title, and I thank you guys all for joining me. This week I'm coming to you from a very, very cold and snow-covered North Wales. Massive thanks out this week to my latest Patreon supporters, that's Ed Hawkins, Carol C., Linda McGurk, Claire Morrison, Lee Seater and Elise Pantino. Thanks so much guys, your support is very much appreciated and there is stuff on the way for some along with the second bonus episode that's now up on the Patreon page for others that I hope you enjoy. So how's everybody's week been then? All good I hope? Personally I can't remember the last time I was warm. It's proper Baltic here at the moment and the UK really can't cope with snow. Hats off to you guys in North America and Scandinavia and places you just get on with much more extreme weather than we have. But here, things come to a standstill and people proper panic by. If it snows for more than an hour, supermarkets are left looking like the walking dead has actually happened. Mind you, in the Asda by me, that's like that all year round. They could film the thriller video any time of the year there. So I managed to catch up this week with the latest episode from Jess Carter at the Outlines podcast. And it's come to be the norm with the show by now. It's again excellent. It concerns an unsolved murder, which is always the focus of Outlines. And this episode concerns the 1961 murder of Linda Smith. Now it's a case I looked at for a potential episode and discussed before now with other true crime authors. But needless to say, I won't be covering it now. Jess has set the bar with it as ever. And I thoroughly recommend you not just go and listen to that one, but binge on the whole series because it's fantastic. And I'm pleased to say which I believe I did say a few weeks back when I first mentioned Outlines. Myself and Jess have discussed having a collaboration and we've hit upon a case we both planned to cover, so we've decided to collaborate on it. Listen out for more details that should be forthcoming and also of another collaboration that's in the works with myself and several other podcasts that I'm sure you'll know and love. We've hit upon something very exciting again, but listen in and when I know more, then you'll know more too. So this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a recounted case from nearly 30 years gone by, but I'm sure once you've heard it, you'll see exactly why it's a case that sticks in the mind. Or it's one that should do, but the name isn't a familiar one really. This week's tale deals with a vicious killer whose actions are so horrific that he would seem an absolute maniac, and it would certainly be easy to believe that he was. A 56-hour spree of slaughter in a small town in the English county of South Yorkshire was to leave four people dead in the most unimaginable of ways. Yet when the killer was examined by a psychiatrist after his arrest and confessing to the crimes, the psychiatrist was to declare him the sanest man in the building. So you can judge for yourselves, is this a nonsense diagnosis and is he proper bananas or is he just bad but not mad? Please be advised that this week's episode contains descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, and it also contains explicit language, so discretion is advised. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as we look back at the case of an exploit of Anthony Paul Arkwright. Many people want nothing more from life than to be famous. It's why dross like Big Brother and The X Factor are still on. Andy Warhol said everyone would be famous for 15 minutes and an awful band called Bross had a smash hit in the 80s with a song asking when will I be famous and they wore bottle tops on their shoes. I even know someone who admitted to having a denim jacket covered in patches of them but of course we shall mention no names. 
So Anthony Paul Arkwright wanted nothing more than to become infamous rather than famous, in the belief that he'd found the most successful way to do this, over the space of 56 hours in the summer of 1988. Arkwright killed four people in what are some of the most horrific and bloodthirsty crimes in British criminal history. He has now spent nearly 30 years locked away for these crimes, and has been told that he will die in prison, the crimes being so horrific that a whole life order was warranted. Yet the name Anthony Arkwright is not largely known, and he's never gained the notoriety that he set out to gain and that cost four people their lives. He does remain a monstrously evil killer, and one who is to this day completely where he should be. He was born in 1967, the middle child of Zoe Wood and Richard Arkwright. Zoe and Richard had four other children, but they were a very dysfunctional and unhappy couple, and the relationship was a bit sour. They would row fiercely, and in 1971, Zoe walked out and left the family home for good, leaving Richard Arkwright to care for the five children. Soon afterwards, Richard was admitted to hospital with severe depression, and the children were admitted into the care of the local authority, living in children's homes and with foster families. So Anthony was described as being a disruptive child with a bullying and aggressive nature, which led to him being expelled from school and eventually leaving with no academic qualifications. Arkwright was to remain in the care system until he reached the age of 16. People who remember him from the time remember him, apart from his 6 foot 4 inch frame, as being a cunning, devious, compulsive liar and a bully. When he was out of schooling, he only worked periodically in the capacity of manual labouring jobs, and official records show that he was to be employed by the National Association for the Care and Rehabilitation of Offenders from 1984 to 1985 and periodically afterwards by the local district council voluntary services agency with casual employment manual labouring at a local scrapyard. It was about this time that he drifted into criminality and he first came to the attention of police at age 17. Arkwright was to amass many convictions for burglary, theft, arson, deception and criminal damage resulting in several periods of incarceration. In July 1985, he received 30 months youth custody for aggravated burglary, and he served 14 of these before being released in September 1986. Throughout his many spells in custody, he used to spend his time in the various institution libraries reading as much as he could about murder and serial killers. He idolised the likes of Peter Sutcliffe and Jack the Ripper, and he used to boast to whoever would listen to him that one day he'd emulate their crimes, and one day become as infamous as them. When he was released, he went to live with his mother, but she found him violent, disruptive and uncontrollable, and she could only put up with him for a couple of weeks. He was then shipped off to stay at his father's flat in a block in Den Road in the town of Wath-upon-Dern in Rotherham, South Yorkshire. This move did little to curb his behaviour, there was no change in attitude or, f or a fresh start from him. Arkwright went more so out of his way to antagonise people and terrorise his neighbours, and he carried on in the same vein as he had previously. By August the following year, he was again sentenced to six months imprisonment for burglary. Following his release, Arkwright returned to the Den Road flat and continued to earn a living from petty crime and casual employment. He didn't claim any form of state benefit whatsoever. Perhaps it's a traitor someone who spent a prolonged period of time locked up, but Arkwright was reported to be a fan of the outdoors, and he preferred being out than in. I can totally understand that. It stands to reason if you've had your liberty taken away, then you don't want to be in, really, do you? 
So Arkwright fancied himself as a bit of a survival fanatic, but this didn't extend any further than building a series of dens and makeshift hides around the area, and apparently he liked these so much that he preferred sleeping in them to his flat. Arming himself with a hunting knife, Arkwright would then spend hours sat in these hideouts, fantasising about people who he didn't like, and fantasising about hurting or killing them. So he sounds nice already, doesn't he, really? For someone who sounds such a weirdo and an antisocial nightmare, Arkwright did actually have a few friends and he'd regularly go out drinking with his neighbour from Denman Road, Neil Hurst. Here, Neil Hurst remembers Arkwright as the following. Tony and I lived in the same block of flats. He didn't get on or spoke to too many people. Deep down, I think he were a lonely lad in his own world. Arkwright was known to argue with and torment his close neighbours regularly, and he took great delight in doing this in different ways. He'd regularly smash their windows, smear excrement around the doors of the house, or even post it through the letterboxes. Other times he could be pleasant and affable with them. Not that they'd likely accept this. You kind of get with this guy that it was how he felt on the day with people. And if someone had put my windows through, or dog muck through the letterbox, I'd be a bit jog on mate, you know. August 1988 found Arkwright in a rare period of employment doing menial labouring at a scrapyard in the nearby town of Mexborough. But on the 26th of August 1988, he was sacked from this job for appalling attendance and his general bad attitude. After being sacked, Arkwright took his severance pay and went on a drinking spree that afternoon in the nearby pub. By 4.15pm he was very drunk and his fantasies of killing were about to make the leap from fantasy to reality. One of the people Arkwright had most fantasised about killing was his maternal grandfather, 68-year-old Lithuanian-born Stasis Pudokis, who Arkwright incorrectly believed was actually his father, and that he, Arkwright, was the product of an incestuous relationship between Mr. Pudokis and Arkwright's own mother. Stasis had come over to the UK following the Second World War, and for many years had worked in the mining industry, as was the industry around the area for many years up until that time. He was now long retired, and he spent his time pottering about in an allotment that he kept nearby. That afternoon at about 4.30pm, Arkwright finished drinking and headed to his grandfather's home in Ruskin Drive in Mexborough, but he found no one home. Knowing exactly where his grandfather would be, Arkwright then headed to his grandfather's allotment a mile away in Adwick Road, and sure enough, he found the old man there tending his vegetable patch. Turning to greet his grandson, Stasis was stabbed with such ferocity in the neck that his spinal cord was severed, and he was instantly paralysed. Arkwright then dragged his grandfather inside his shed, and then proceeded to embed a large axe into the old man's chest. He then smashed his skull to pieces with repeated blows from a 14-pound sledgehammer, leaving catastrophic head wounds. Arkwright then locked the body inside the shed and went back to his grandfather's house to try to find and steal his life savings of £3,000. Returning to the house on Ruskin Drive, Arkwright found his grandfather's common-law wife at the house, 72-year-old Elsa Conradite. Like Stasis, Elsa had come over as a refugee following the Second World War, and she'd worked in the local mills of the area, meeting Stasis in 1966, and soon afterwards began living with him. Due to Arkwright's behaviour, she was frightened of him, and on several occasions had told Stasis to prevent his grandson from coming around to the house. 
So Arkwright entered the house that afternoon and finding Elsa ironing in the kitchen, proceeded to smash her skull in with an axe and left her for dead on the kitchen floor with the axe firmly left embedded in her. He covered her partially with a sheet, then he ransacked the house looking for his grandfather's life savings. He failed to find them, instead taking some items of jewellery and his grandfather's inscribed valuable pocket watch. Arkwright then returned home to Denham Road and left his blood-stained clothes to soak in the bath. So he spent the Friday evening drinking in several pubs in the area along with his neighbour Neil Hurst and Neil's cousin, who remembers the night vividly because Arkwright turned up at Neil's flat ready to go out but dressed in full combat fatigues. After being told in no certain terms that he was dressed foolishly and he wouldn't be allowed into any nightclubs dressed like that, Arkwright got changed and borrowed some clothes off Neil, then they went out. As they got into the taxi to leave to head into town, neighbour Marcus Law crossed the road in his wheelchair in front of the car and good-naturedly began messing about, pulling wheelies instead of moving. Whilst Tony and his cousin took this for the general good-natured messing about that it was, and jokingly told Marcus to shift, Arkwright didn't share the humour, not one bit. He was heard to say, I'm going to kill that bastard. Something in his voice had unnerved Neil, and he was left in no doubt that Arkwright meant what he'd just said. Suddenly they didn't want to go out, and they spent what was to be an uncomfortable evening out. Arkwright reportedly spent the whole evening deliberately drawing attention to himself by being very loud and obnoxious, by attempting to pick fights with several people, and generally making a nuisance of himself, pestering women and dancing like an idiot, even dropping hints about his crime. People remarked later that they remembered the wild-eyed weirdo demonstrating this craving for recognition and attention. Arkwright told a barman that evening, It's been murder on the allotment today. And then he was heard to say to friends, Have you heard about the mad axeman in town? He's supposed to be coming this way. Arkwright drew so much attention to the group through his behaviour that night that they were politely asked to leave the nightclub they were in as only bouncers can ask. Arkwright was picked up by the belt and bodily thrown out onto the street and the group made their way back to Denham Road. When they arrived back there, as Neil and his cousin walked up the stairs to their flat, they heard a crash of breaking glass, and turning around saw that Arkwright had thrown a dustbin through the front window of his neighbour Raymond Ford's flat, apparently just for a bit of fun. That was enough for Neil and his cousin, and they made their excuses and left Arkwright to his own devices, calling him a maniac and telling him to pack it in. Neither Neil or his cousin knew just how accurate, due to his actions already that afternoon, that they'd been in calling Arkwright a maniac. And he was far from finished for the night. The neighbour whose flat it was that had the dustbin thrown through the window, Raymond Ford, was a favourite target of Arkwright's to terrorise. Raymond was a 45-year-old former schoolteacher who taught English in African countries until 1975, but had then had to cease teaching when it was discovered he was suffering from both epilepsy and malaria. These conditions had caused him to return to the UK to live and to move back in with his father and stepmother, but he found a teaching position in the UK wasn't forthcoming due to his illnesses. This led Raymond to a deep depression and he began to develop an alcohol dependence as a result. By 1988, Raymond's father and stepmother had both passed away, and Raymond lived alone in the flat that they'd shared on Denman Road, just next door to Arkwright. A very solitary man, his drinking had continued to excess, 
and coupled with a severe depression and arthritis that crippled his hands, feet and hips and left him with a pronounced limp, it got to the stage where Raymond would rarely venture out of his flat for more than a short time each day. When he did venture out, it was only as a necessity to buy more alcohol and the Guardian newspaper, of which he was a habitual reader, and completed the crossword on a daily basis. Which is some doing that, really. Me and my workmates used to have a combined go at it each Friday many years ago, and it was always a real non-starter. Raymond's flat was renowned for its squalor because he wouldn't get rid of any of the empty bottles of cider that he drank each day, instead just leaving them where they lay. And as a result, the flat was cluttered with newspapers and a large stash of empty bottles, containing very little of value or personal possessions. So this severely depressed man, keeping to himself in his own tragic existence, often found himself the target of his six foot four inch younger neighbour's attentions to bully and terrorise. As said before, Arkwright would often smash Raymond's windows, cover his door handles with dog feces, or even post it through his letterbox, and he would regularly have stand-up rows with him on the odd occasion when Raymond would confront Arkwright about his behaviour. In the early hours of the Thursday morning, the 25th of August 1988, Arkwright had even burgled Raymond's home. He had entered through the wide open door which Raymond had drunkenly left open and had taken a microwave oven and a valuable antique clock, probably Raymond's most valuable possession. Raymond had discovered the theft the following day and had reported it and his suspicions also about who was behind it to police, naming Arkwright as the likely culprit. He also reported Arkwright's consistent harassment of him. Police had responded immediately to this report and attempted to speak to Arkwright concerning this on the Friday, but of course he wasn't at home because we've already heard how he spent his Friday afternoon. When Arkwright did return home early that Friday evening, he must have heard that police had been around asking for him in connection with a burglary, and knowing that Raymond would have said that it was him, well, somehow in Arkwright's twisted logic, this made Arkwright focus his wrath on Raymond Ford and want revenge. Perhaps he brooded on this all night and this had helped affect his behaviour. He was certainly remembered after all for being antagonistic and acting strangely that night and was described more than once as a wild-eyed weirdo. Plus when they got home he picked up and launched a dustbin through Raymond's window. Fancy chucking a bin through someone's window in revenge because they have reported you for burgling them. What kind of planet do you have to live on for that to be justified? It's just not happening is it? So Neil and his cousin had gone in and left him to it, not wanting any part of trouble whatsoever. But that wasn't all Arkwright was to do that night, not by a long shot. Please be advised that the following contains descriptions of a crime that listeners may find very disturbing. Sometime in the early hours of the morning of Saturday the 27th of August, Arkwright returned to the home of Raymond Ford. He was naked, apart from a cheap Prince of Darkness devil mask that he enjoyed wearing to jump out of people to frighten them, and he'd armed himself with two of the many knives that Arkwright was a habitual collector of. Entering Raymond's bungalow through the broken window that he himself had just caused a few hours previously, Arkwright proceeded to vent his full revenge in the loosest possible term of the word on the helpless man that he found lying in a drunken sleep on the sofa inside. In actions that sickened hardened detectives who later saw the scene, 
Arkwright stabbed Raymond Ford at least 250 times in every part of his body, although most accounts put the figure as nearer to 500 times. Such was the ferocity of the attack and the extent of Arkwright's bloodlust that 11 of Raymond's ribs were broken. One of the knives broke off during the attack and was left sticking out of the wound. Arkwright then simply began using another knife and continued stabbing him. So just take that in there for a second. Up to 500 stab wounds. Can you imagine the extent of hatred a person must have or rage or pure bloodlust to do that? Even if it was a wound inflicted each second, which would be physically draining and probably couldn't be committed without the killer needing to rest in between, that would still work out at more than 8 continual minutes of concentrated violence. Punch your fist into your palm 500 times, see how draining that is and how long that takes. And can you imagine the fear and suffering that Raymond Ford must have gone through in his final moments? Utterly horrific. A police officer describing the scene was later to describe it. It was the most brutal act of slaughter I have ever seen. It is all the more chilling when you realise that he must have spent at least half an hour inflicting those terrible wounds. And if that wasn't horrific enough, then there was more to come. Arkwright decided that no, this wasn't enough, and he decided to gut what was left of Raymond. So Raymond was then gutted and disemboweled, and his entrails and organs were draped and scattered all around his flat. They were left in the bedroom, amongst the clutter in the front room, and all across the hall. Raymond Ford's body was then stripped to the underpants, then laid across his bed under a mountain of clothing. Arkwright then left the flat the way he'd come in through the broken window and made his way home to shower off the blood, which Arkwright must have been slicked head to toe with. He then went to bed and slept soundly. At 8.50am that Saturday morning, the 27th of August, police knocked on Arkwright's door and after a period where he refused to answer the door to them, they were eventually admitted entrance to Arkwright's flat. A search of the flat revealed the items Raymond Ford had reported missing, hidden with a large collection of knives and a valuable-looking pocket watch with a personalised Russian inscription on the rear. Arkwright was arrested on suspicion of the burglary earlier in the week at Mr Ford's house, and when interviewed later at Romarsh police station, he was ultimately to admit under interview the burglary, telling police quite casually, Yes, I did it in the middle of the night. Door were wide open, so I went in for a look round. Just look round. He was asleep on bed or settee, so I took this clock and microwave. Arkwright was detained for a few hours before being charged with burglary, theft and criminal damage. Small potatoes to someone with such a disturbed record. He was bailed to attend court later the same week, and unbelievably was then given a lift home by PC David Winter, who was attempting to speak to Raymond Ford to obtain a witness statement concerning the burglary. PC Winter knocked on the door of Ford's flat, but there was no answer, and failing to notice the broken window, PC Winter left. Arkwright watched from his front door, bemused that police had had a murderer in custody and had released him on bail to attend court later that week for burglary. Arkwright would certainly make it to court that week, but all charges of burglary were forgotten by that time. So that Saturday afternoon, by this time a triple murderer, yet none of the victims having been discovered or acknowledged, Arkwright again spent the afternoon drinking in pubs around the Mexborough area, and again drawing attention to himself, much in the same vein as he had the previous evening, and coming out with the wildest claims, 
almost as though he was desperate for his notoriety and was struggling keeping what he'd done to himself. In several pubs he visited, he was heard telling fellow drinkers that his neighbours should be shot like in Belfast, that he'd committed a double murder some weeks before, or referring to a double murder, whilst in another pub he was remembered saying as he left, See you next Friday at 2 o'clock if I don't get 25 years on Wednesday. He then told a female acquaintance in another pub he was in, I'll only stop here if I can go to bed with you because I'm going to get 25 years for murder. Ladies form a leisurely queue, eh? With a silver-tongued charmer like that, surely anybody is putty. Unsurprisingly, Arkwright found himself heading home alone that evening, again in the early hours. Early that Sunday, and due to whatever strange urges or bloodlust was going through his mind again, Arkwright once again targeted another of his neighbours to kill, in an almost carbon copy of what had transpired just 24 hours before. This time, the victim was 25-year-old Marcus Law, whom Arkwright had been heard threatening to kill on the Friday evening. Marcus lived alone in a bungalow just across from Arkwright's flat on Denham Road and was also opposite the flat of Raymond Ford. And like Raymond, Marcus's life was also blighted by tragedy. He'd come from a close-knit family, one that had already seen tragedy when Marcus's older brother had taken his own life in 1973, aged just 13. With the death of their first-born child, Tony and Norma Law had been ever more protective when they'd focused upon Marcus. But they'd had to deal with tragedy yet again when, some years later, Marcus had been involved in a serious motorcycle accident that left him confined to a wheelchair for life. As Marcus lived alone, he'd had to have his bungalow specially adapted to cater for his mobility, but he was visited regularly by his family and friends, and he'd managed to adapt to his life-changing injuries. He was generally well-liked, but was another of the people that Arkwright chose to fall out with on a whim. They could be civil one moment, then argue like cat and dog the next. What earmarked him for what Arkwright did to him in the early hours of Sunday the 28th of August 1988 can only be guessed at. It can hardly be comprehended. Again, the following makes for disturbing listening. Sometime after midnight, Arkwright entered Marcus's bungalow and finding him asleep on the sofa, proceeded to stab him to death, again using several knives and again in what appeared a maniacal attack. Marcus was stabbed more than 70 times. Once again, that wasn't the full extent of the horror that was inflicted though. Arkwright also attempted to disembowel Marcus, much the same way that he had Raymond Ford, but he failed to do so. He instead rammed one of Marcus's aluminium crutches into the gaping wound in an attempt to impale him on it and then left it sticking out of the wound. Not finished at this, Arkwright then proceeded to gouge out Marcus's eyeballs and then in a final obscene act placed unlit cigarettes in the empty eye sockets, into his nostrils, his mouth and into his ears. In a repeat of the actions the previous evening, Arkwright then left the scene, walking out and leaving the front door open, and he went home to once again wash the blood off him, then went to bed as though nothing had happened. In a television interview many years later, neighbour Neil Hurst described that later that Sunday afternoon, he went over to visit Marcus, and finding the door open, went inside after repeated calling brought him no response. He thought Marcus may perhaps fallen and injured himself, so he made his way into the front room of the bungalow, 
It was here that Neil found a sight so horrific that even more than 20 years later, he admitted it still to this day gives him nightmares. Neil was to discover the butchered body of Marcus Law and straight away suspected who'd done this, Anthony Arkwright. But Neil was too afraid to report what he'd found to police and instead he fled home and said nothing. The reason for this? Fear. Fear of Arkwright, but also fear of any possible implication. When Neil and his cousin had left Arkwright in the early hours of the Saturday morning after he'd thrown the dustbin through Raymond's window and he'd gone to bed, he was awoken some time later by a repeated banging on their door, but they didn't answer. It was Anthony Arkwright knocking, but it was unable to be determined if this was before or after he'd killed Raymond Ford. Neil remains convinced to this day that if he had answered that knock, then he wouldn't be alive today. I'm inclined to agree that he's right. So by this time, within just 48 hours, four people were dead at the hands of one man. Each had a connection to Anthony Paul Arkwright, and none bar Marcus Law had been discovered. Even then, it wasn't reported, unbelievably. The following morning, Monday the 29th of August, Arkwright had a chance meeting with Norma Law in a road near to his home, and he smirked to himself as he told her, Sorry about poor old Marcus, he's killed himself. Now this would be a strange thing to say to someone's mother, even as some sort of sick joke. It serves to highlight just how much Arkwright was desperate for his notoriety. There'd been no attempt to flee and stay at liberty. He must have been waiting for the inevitable, and indeed he seemed desperate for it. Why else would he say something like that unless he wanted his handiwork found? It must have been absolutely killing him. So as a result of this conversation, Mrs Law hurried around to his son's bungalow and made the horrific discovery. That must have been unimaginable, mustn't it? Police were called by a shaken and distraught Norma, who told them about the conversation that she'd just had a short time earlier with Arkwright, and that he was known to have a turbulent relationship with Marcus. As Arkwright was a name that was well known to the police, and when a check revealed that just two days before, Arkwright had been bailed for a burglary at the home of another neighbour, he became the prime person of interest to police. He was arrested by a team of detectives by one o'clock that Monday afternoon, and he was taken into custody. The interviews that followed were to prove remarkable. Perhaps an example of Arkwright's desperation for some sort of infamy or recognition was the conversation he is reported to have had with police staff whilst he was being held the day that Marcus Law's body was discovered. It led to a truly bizarre interaction with police over a series of interviews and one that left no doubt in the minds of investigating officers that they were dealing with a truly monstrously evil killer, one who was a fantasist and one who relished his chance at infamy and notoriety. Arrested on suspicion of murder, between the many interviews, as police were beginning the work into the investigation into Marcus Law's murder, Arkwright was reportedly given a pack of playing cards to amuse himself with in his cell. Shortly afterwards, and this again like his actions on the drinking sessions following each of the murders, shows an almost childish and immature desperation for attention, Arkwright poked his head through the inspection hatch of his cell and said to the supervising officer, how do you know there's only one? There may be two or three. I'm psychic. When they find the other body, they'll know it wasn't me because I'm here. So Arkwright was to confess in a fashion. He was certainly to lead police to the victims, but in a very theatrical way. He made a big show like something he'd rehearsed over in his mind, 
of dictating the initial interview using the pack of playing cards. Splitting the deck and pointing to one card, the Four of Hearts, Arkwright said, This is the Master card. It means you have four bodies and a madman on the loose. You found one, but there are three others. I can't see where they are. I can see Marcus, but the others are indescribable. They are just too horrible to describe. Who else had possibly been killed? At that time, police didn't know, because Arkwright wouldn't say any more than cryptic ramblings such as this. He revelled in being the centre of attention, but wouldn't expand on what he meant any further. Police had little actual evidence against Arkwright and he denied having killed Marcus Law, but with him as their prime suspect in mind, police set about making inquiries in the Denham Road area, and with the fact that Arkwright was due to appear in court on the burglary charge as a starting point, they went first to speak to Raymond Ford, who hadn't yet been accounted for. PC David Winter who had arrested Arkwright only two days before and had tried unsuccessfully to gain a statement from Raymond Ford, now discovered a sight he would never forget. Seeing the broken window at Ford's flat, PC Winter made his way inside, finding the door to the flat open. There was no answer to repeated calls, and as PC Winter moved into the hallway, he noticed that on the floor in the hall corridor were several items, including a Prince of Darkness devil mask. Although the house lights didn't work, the television was on and the central heating, and when the unmistakable stench of decomposition led PC Winter to the bedroom, he discovered the remains of Raymond Ford lying in the corner of the room under a pile of clothing. David Winter was to describe later all the bits and pieces in the hallway that were his internal organs. He'd removed practically every internal organ in his body. Police had found the second body, and they knew then that Arkwright was telling the truth. It was only when scenes of crime officers arrived at the scene, and the darkened flat was floodlit, could they appreciate the horror of what had gone on there, and the savagery of what had happened to Raymond Ford. Blood covered the entire flat, it was everywhere, and the scene was exactly how David Winter had described it. More than one expert has described the actions as a technique similar to that displayed by Jack the Ripper and more than one attending officer described it as the worst crime scene they'd ever attended in their careers. A solicitor who had represented Arkwright many times before for his various criminal escapades, Steve Smith, and who was representing him on that Monday, was called out of the interview room where he'd been with Arkwright and told about the discovery of Raymond Ford. He recounted the conversation many years later. The policeman, with a very stern face, told me, there's another body, and we believe it's connected. And they were still counting, he said. This is how he put it. They are still counting the stab wounds. I went back in and told him. They found another body, Tony. And he just laughed. He knew, almost as if he'd been waiting for that moment, and then the questions would begin again. He loved it. He absolutely loved it. There was this total disregard for the plight that he was in. So police had two bodies now and Arkwright had claimed in a roundabout fashion that there were four in total. Who were the other two? Attempts were then made to trace friends and acquaintances of Arkwright to try to identify anybody who was missing. By Wednesday, police had called at the home of Stasis Pudokis, who again had not been accounted for. There was no answer at the house despite repeated knocking and feeling something wasn't quite right. Police made their way in through an upstairs bedroom window. Inside, they found signs of the house being ransacked. Drawers in the bedroom had been turned out and possessions were left scattered across the floor. 
In the kitchen, police discovered the body of Elsa Conradite lying on the floor. She'd been hit over the head with an axe. The wound had killed her instantly. The axe still remained embedded in the wound five days later. Police now realised they could likely ascertain the identity of the fourth victim that Arkwright had hinted at, Stasis Pudokis, but he was nowhere to be found in the house, so where was he? A conversation with one of the neighbours of the couple led police to discover that Stasis had an allotment on Adwick Road, and police decided to try there. Upon arrival at the allotment, they discovered the door to the shed there was locked, and forcing entry made a gruesome discovery. Stasis was found lying on the floor in the corner of the shed, having been clearly dead for some time. Along with having several stab wounds, an axe was protruding from a gaping wound in his chest, and his head had been left almost unrecognisable from the wounds Arkwright had inflicted with the sledgehammer to his own grandfather. At interview, when he was pressed as how he knew there were three more bodies, Arkwright gave another rambling answer. Without looking at the cards when the officers were present, I dealt them out. I took a card from the middle and I opened them up to the dark side. People say when you die, you see your past shoot in front of you. When I tamper into the unknown, I go forward and meet up with the beginning of the black purple. Prove it. I deny it with me because you know fuck all about black magic. It says it in the cards. You're supposed to be the best police officers. You find them. Would I help you find them? Would you help me find my own destiny? This is just an example of one of the many ramblings that Arkwright was to give to police over the course of several interviews over the following days. The theatrics with the deck of cards was just after police had entered the home of Raymond Ford and discovered his remains, but before Arkwright had been interviewed about it under caution. With the discovery of the two bodies mutilated beyond belief in different houses just across the street from one another, and you have a known criminal in custody, with circumstantial and physical evidence against the suspect, and then he mentions another two bodies, you sit up and take notice. You play it his way to an extent and you let him talk. He'd vary from giving accounts of learning details concerning the crimes from other people. For example, he claimed that a little girl between four and five years old had told him about Marcus's death, claiming that she'd told him, Marcus has done himself in. He's found strung up in his house, suspicious circumstances. Now that does sound like a load of old tosh really, doesn't it? How many five-year-old girls would talk like that? And the police can clearly see this as a fabrication, yet Arkwright would continue to lie about, deny or evade everything else that was put to him and was returned to his cell after each interview, only for the whole circus to begin again the next time. Then he'd refuse food in protest against something, although what he was protesting about he never explained. The interviews tended to get more surreal, with his next interview with his mother Zoe in attendance, largely spent with Arkwright ignoring much of what was said to him and refusing to answer. Then suddenly he piped up and said, There's a lot of personal questions in these forms what mean so much to me. If you want to know why I aren't talking now, I'm talking about a personal matter what I keep between my family. It's not every day that my brother shags Margaret Thatcher. No more questions. Now it's doubtful that this actually did happen, with the Arkwrights being a mining family after all, I seriously doubt that his brother did boff the Iron Lady, but this shows just the kind of ramblings that Arkwright was coming out with, or was it all a ploy to try to convince police that he was insane? In another interview, Arkwright was to even blame his mother for having equal culpability in the killings, and tried to stem the blame for his actions onto his grandfather, saying... 
Me grandfather told me he was my father and he raped me mother. She's only after that three grand. I'm going to tell the truth now. I witnessed her do two murders and I did the other two. Me mam killed Marcus. She stabbed him in the neck. It didn't go right through, though it went down. I've killed a man who shagged my mother and is my father. So Arkwright did not specify which of he and his mother had killed each of the other two victims. He was confronted by police who clearly didn't believe any of the story that he was coming out with, and eventually Arkwright was to confess to the murders of his grandfather, Raymond Ford, and Marcus Law, telling police where he disposed of the knives that he'd used to kill Marcus in a gutter of the victim's bungalow. They were exactly where Arkwright said they would be. He stopped short of confessing to the murder of Elsa Conradite, but he did go as far as to say that he had stood over her body with the axe in his hand. Perhaps for some wild reason this murder disturbed him more than any of the others, and he couldn't actually face what he'd done. He took no pride in it, for want of a better word. He was charged with all four murders anyway, and was incarcerated at Hull Prison whilst awaiting trial. Not being content with being out of the limelight whilst on remand, Arkwright invented a fifth victim that he claimed to have killed. Now he'd been so candid and proud of his actions, plus the whole business with a Thor of Hearts card, the police could almost see through what this claim was, cry for attention. Nonetheless, it had to be checked out, which led police on a wild goose chase searching a nearby lake and a drainage ditch for where Arkwright claimed he had left body parts and knives used. Nothing was found, it was simply to gain attention, and this continued whilst he was awaiting trial. Arkwright was angered at what he deemed was a lack of respect and recognition for him, and he didn't like one bit not being centre of attention, so he regularly staged dirty protests, smearing his cell walls with excrement. When this still in his mind failed to gain him the notoriety he craved, Arkwright then changed tack and managed to convince prison doctors that he was insane. Now with the actions this guy had admitted to doing, any man and his dog would believe this was possible, indeed likely. Transferred to Rampton Secure Hospital in Merseyside for tests, detailed examinations found this to be a complete ruse and that Arkwright was fit to plead at trial. A psychiatrist at Rampton claimed of Arkwright, he is the sanest man in the building. It was simply another attempt to be the centre of attention. In July 1989, Anthony Arkwright came to trial at Sheffield Crown Court for the murders he'd committed. From the first day of his trial, he was still there angling for every single bit of attention he could eke, revelling in all of the reporters there. Photographs of Arkwright attending court show a smiling killer playing up to this attention, and when an angry crowd, which there always is at notable trials, began to shout murderer and string him up, Arkwright responded in kind by shouting back innocent or Bastards, bastards, bastards. He absolutely loved it all. The crimes were described in the chronological order that they'd occurred, beginning with the murder of Arkwright's grandfather Stasis and ending with the death of Marcus Law. Counsel for the prosecution, Stephen Williamson QC, was to go through the whole disturbing details of the crimes and of Arkwright's subsequent interviews for the jury, shocking them with Arkwright's actions and his callous and indifferent remarks about his victims. Things like he described how his grandfather's brains looked like baked beans when he'd finished with him, and of Raymond Ford, he had said to interviewing officers after admitting killing him, Ford fucking shit himself, you know. When I jumped through the fucking window with that mask, the devil's mask, aren't you fucking found that either? 
After an adjournment requested by his legal representation, Arkwright changed his not guilty plea to that of guilty of the murders of his grandfather Stasis Pudokis and his neighbours Raymond Ford and Marcus Law. He maintained his plea of not guilty to the murder of Elsa Conradite and that charge was ordered by Mr Justice Borum, the presiding judge, to be left on file. Before sentencing, Arkwright's barrister, James Chadwin QC, summed up Arkwright is a young man who suffers from severe personality damage and disorder. He's shown signs of disturbance since the time his mother left him when he was four years old. Yet despite a personality disorder, it was decided that Arkwright was bad but not mad, and that there was only one possible sentence. Anthony Arkwright was sentenced to life imprisonment, with the recommendation that he serve at least 25 years. Mr Justice Borum sentencing him summed up saying, The murders can only be described as horrible offences of sadistic cruelty, cruelty for its own sake. I accept that you've had a deprived and disturbed childhood, but that cannot be any excuse for the appalling cruelty and apparent sadistic pleasure with which you've carried out these offences. There is nothing in the medical evidence to mitigate what you've done. I have no doubt, having read the reports of three eminent psychiatrists and others, that you constitute a serious danger to the public and will remain so for a very long time to come, and the horror of this case leaves me with no option but to pass life sentences. Just a year later, in 1990, a review of sentences for killers by the then Home Secretary Jack Straw declared this term as being too lenient and increased the term to that of a whole life tariff. Arkwright has over the years launched a legal challenge against this whole life tariff, but this has been ruled as just in his case and he's been told that he will die in prison. Why then did Arkwright kill? What triggered an orgy of murder such as that in August 1988? It was established that he had a deprived upbringing and at his trial his defence portrayed a picture of a young man suffering from severe personality damage and disorder. Did he really believe that he was the product of incest and brood and brood about this and how his life had worked out until one day the trigger for his killing spree was being fired from his job? More likely it was that it was a combination of this, plus an underlying personality disorder and a desire to be recognised in any means possible that one day made him act out the things he'd fantasised about. He'd obviously had dark thoughts for a long time prior to his spree, and although he wasn't diagnosed as insane after several examinations, it is clear that he was a violent psychopath at the very least. Perhaps alcohol also played some part in his actions. Before each of the killings, he had drunk heavily, and this may have given him the courage to do it, for want of a better word. Yet throughout all, it seems most apparent that what Arkwright craved at any cost, even his own liberty, was infamy. So many of his actions show this, and this craving overtook any careful planning and consideration to commit the perfect crime. There was his choice of victims, he had a direct connection with each of them, and all could be easily traced back to him. They were people accessible to him directly, no one had been hunted down or stalked. Then there was the bragging and making jokes and quips about his having committed murder after each killing. There was the macabre act with the playing cards, the dirty protests in prison, the creation of a fifth victim and the ruse to convince doctors that he was insane. He didn't seem to care that he'd be locked up for many years for his crimes. There was no attempt to seriously place blame anywhere else, or to even try to plea bargain. All of the evidence points to a deeply disturbed individual that craved attention and would have loved nothing more than to have been one of Britain's best-known and most reviled killers. But for all his horrific crimes, 
and I'm sure you'll agree that they are just that, horrific. The name of Anthony Paul Arkwright isn't familiar to the public like either of the rippers that he so wanted to be like. I wonder how many listeners before the episode were familiar with his crimes and this horrific case. Unlike the Rippers, there's no definitive book about Arkwright's crimes, his sprees never been the basis of any drama serial or film. Instead, he's limited to a few chapters in a select few true crime texts. His legacy is that he is best forgotten about. And he largely is. He now serves his time in prison with no possible chance of release. He's never expressed any emotion or remorse or explanations for his crimes by the ramblings that have been recounted here. The belief that his grandfather was his actual father and had committed incest with his mother. He has never admitted to why he killed Raymond Ford and the closest he has ever come to admitting the reasons for his final murder is to claim that he killed Marcus Law because he was fed up of him asking Arkwright for cigarettes. Yet these murders are not the work of someone committing them in a heat of an argument over cigarettes. You don't go home and don a devil mask if you kill someone in the heat of the row. You don't extract someone's eyeballs and impale them on a crutch simply because you're fed up with them cadging fags off you. No, these killings are for the sake of killing, and are cowardly murders committed against people who were no match for the 6 foot 4 inch Arkwright. An old man fearful of his grandson, an elderly lady, an unwell and depressed heavy drinker, and a man who was wheelchair-bound. So Arkwright the Coward is hardly remembered, indeed, even largely unknown and deservedly so. But he is not forgotten by the families of his victims. They'll never forget what he's done, and even years later his horrific actions still cause tragic ripples. Fourteen years after his son's murder, Marcus Law's father, Tony, committed suicide by gassing himself in his car. He'd never got over his son's horrific death, and poor Norma Law arguably lost a son and husband due to the actions of Anthony Arkwright. Norma Law told after her husband's inquest, No parent could ever come to terms with something as traumatic as that. What happened to Marcus preyed on Tony's mind. He kept having nightmares Marcus was screaming for his dad, but he just couldn't get to him. We moved for a fresh start, but Tony just couldn't escape the memories. What a tragic set of circumstances, created by a monster who is thankfully now where he belongs, locked away to die in prison. And this is surely public feeling, but perhaps best summed up by the detective who Arkwright was to confess his crimes to. Now retired, South Yorkshire Police Inspector Bob Law echoed his support of the whole life tariff in an interview many years later. From the day we brought him in for the Marcus Law murder to the day he was jailed, Arkwright seemed genuinely proud of what he'd done. He expected everyone to revere him, to be fascinated by him. He was a messed up kid, desperate for attention. In his defected mind, he chose murder to get the attention he craved. He's the most dangerous person I ever met in 25 years on the job. He should never get out. Well, that is the unbelievable story of Anthony Arkwright. Shocking or what, guys? Certainly one of the most horrific cases I've ever come across. There's very little to research about the case without properly digging, and during research for this episode, I found a number of chapters in texts concerning the case, plus a documentary online that proved invaluable in creating the episode. I have, as always, placed links to these sources in the show's notes, which, to clarify, are always along with the description of the episode in the link that goes out on a Tuesday, and that I do share over various platforms. I only say that because I was asked by someone the other day where the show notes were. Check out Arkwright, look at the smirking and shouting face of this guy, then picture him committing the heinous acts that he so did. 
and then come and discuss it on the thread in the Facebook group, which will be up and which I look forward to joining in with each week. Let me know your thoughts on this guy and his all horrendous actions. So next week is the first season finale, which sounds much more dramatic than it really is. I'm only away for three and a half weeks, so class it more as a short break. There's no who shot JR type cliffhangers or anything. I'm not going to revolutionise the podcast in that time either. I'll still be doing the full behind the scenes lot and rest assured the fridge blackboard is still as full as ever. Plus in that break there will of course be another Patreon supporters exclusive episode released. So you can always head over there if three weeks is too long. You'll get three bonus episodes in there by that time. And of course links to the Patreon page to do so and links to my social media are with the show notes. So I hope you'll join me then for the season finale of the show next week. Until then I wish you all a good and safe week and have fun in the snow if you have it of course. I've been and still am Paul the true crime enthusiast. Take care, guys. Thanks very much for joining me, and I shall speak to you soon. Goodbye for now.